Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Marlena Graves. She is a writer, deep thinker, and speaker who is passionate about the eternal implications of our life in God. She's a lover of beauty, especially the beauty of her family, others, and creation. She's a justice seeker trying to overcome evil with good. In addition, she seeks answers to these types of questions. What does abundant life look like? If God is good and we are his deeply beloved children and safe in his kingdom, how then should we live? Her newest book is The Way Up Is Down. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Marlena Graves. Marlena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. It's a thrill to have you on. Uh, we we just this is like uh, divinely intended. I'm I'm sure for those of you who are listening who believe in that sort of thing, because we've fought through the tech issues for like you know 40 minutes and we figured it out together. It's a rare time where uh, the app I use doesn't work, but this is one of these times where we both have to restart our computers, which is just. Free technological advice, everybody. If things don't work, restart your computer. So you've written this book, The Way Up Is Down. And it's interesting because it the title itself, you know, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself is the subtitle. And I just think the whole thrust of it is exactly the opposite of everything our culture teaches us, right? I mean, I always think that Donald Trump is not the illness of the culture. He's a symptom of the illness, right? And there's nobody more... Uh, there's nothing more opposite of the way up is down than Trump, right? And, and yet there's a reason why he got elected. There's a reason why he gets big ratings and news conferences, right? I mean, there's something about our culture that says, that just almost has this visceral reaction, right, against that the way up is down. Yeah, I, the way you said that, I haven't heard it just said um, exactly like that. I appreciate it. Um, you know, as Christians, people, at least I'm a professing Christian, and... Um, we say we follow Jesus, but that kind of self-absorption and self-interest is contrary to the gospel. And I don't understand um, why, you know, you might see it on an athletic field, why some people think you are only supposed to be a Christian in certain venues or environments, but when it comes to politics or athletics or pick your pick whatever it is, it's like those ethics and values go out the window and those ways of being. And so I think you're right. I um, I know that he all of a sudden claims to be a Christian or people thought he was a baby Christian, but he's certainly not an example f- of Jesus to me and to many people. Yeah. I mean, you talk in the opening chapter about this sort of um, the, the self-emptying, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's just something that seems... Like the le- the least Trumpian value, right? It's self filling. It's like, <laughs> you know, like, but that's you know the the inability uh, to kind of um, exhibit humility. I mean, or, or any kind of or any kind of um, or even hum- even allow yourself to be humiliated. I mean, right? Like, I mean, these are things that. But that's largely the way you open the book about about this way. You know, if God, I mean, I remember as I was reading the first chapter of the book, I thought about something Karl Barth said that um, God is no higher than in his own humility. Mm-hmm. 
And if you don't get that, your theology is really off. Like if you think Jesus is less than the Father or the Spirit because he was the sent humbled one, uh, no, that's where God is highest in this humility. And I think your book strikes me as an invitation, right? To see that counterintuitive thing that it's going to be hard and your human nature, you're going to fight it tooth and nail every kicking and screaming to go down. But when you let go and, and release that, that's when you get lifted up, right? Yes. I, I was just struck and I talk about that in the opening chapters of the book. You know, I grew up very poor and, um, and I suppose, and I write that, that I, that's why I'm obsessed with Jesus's poverty and his humility, because he could have been born in a palace or, you know, in the among the richest people on earth, but he always made a beeline for those that were left out, um, the marginalized uh, by the church. And I just saw a real huge contrast. And I should say, I saw, I see a huge, real, a huge contrast with how Jesus conducted himself. Um, Philippians 2, self-emptying, right? Self-offering. Many of the First shall be last, and the last shall be first. Uh, the greatest person in the kingdom will be the servant of all. Contrasted with the American church as a whole, I'm not saying every Christian or every pastor, every leader, but I see a lot of people selling their souls for political power and gain, especially the people that talked about um, living morally and ethically, um, selling their souls for power. It's almost like greed for power. And wealth don't cut, count as sins, even though Jesus says you'll serve God or money. I see a lot of Christian leaders ser- serving money and wealth and the same people that said that character mattered. And so I wanted to examine what it would like would look like to live like Jesus now. And I see he did not handle power and money in that way. I mean, why did he come as the poorest of the poor? Uh, I mean he gave up his rights and he didn't cling to them. And I think that's what he's calling us as Christians to do. And I think we'd look a lot different as a church. And I mean, the worldwide in the American church, if we followed his footsteps. There's a great story you have in the book where you talk about being in the gym uh, and you're at the local Y and you're pumping your legs hard on the, on the incumbent bike or whatever. And this guy yeah, you overhear this guy who's like a gym rat. He's kind of, you know, he seems like sweaty. He's probably grunting and all this stuff. And he says to his buddy, you know what I did this morning? Same old, same old. I woke up, smoked some weed and watched porn. And you're kind of like, oh my gosh, thank God. I, my husband does that. I'm so fortunate. And then you go back to the story in, in the Bible, in Luke, uh, of the Pharisee and the publican. For those listeners who don't aren't super familiar with the Bible, it's this story where this religious leader uh, has kind of praised, like, thank God I'm not like this person. Thank God I'm not like this person. Thank God, thank God I'm not like this publican. And the publican just throws his face on the floor and just asks God for mercy. And it's, I mean, in that moment, it's a very powerful story, I think, you you relayed there. And I, I was pretty impressed that you told it that vulnerably. I mean, why did you feel the need to include that in the book? Because I think um, I've said this in my other book, we're all canes <laughs> with our own ables. Um, we're all canes with our own ables. And that I too have, um, uh, you know, St. Macarius said there's angels and demons and, and paradise and hell all in our hearts. And so I'm writing this book talking about how we're not supposed to, um, how I'm, you know, many in the church have sold their souls for money and power, but 
my point is, too, that I have that in me because it was so I couldn't believe it as I felt like God was communicating to me. Like, you know, I felt like God say to me, not audibly, of course, but like, you know, Marlena, you're sounding like that bad Pharisee in that story, because I actually thought at least I don't have a husband that just wakes up in the morning, uh, smokes weed and watches porn. I was so disgusted. And he was saying it so loudly. And God was like, actually, you're the problem. Like you're judging this man. Um, And yes, this is not great. But your sense of um, superiority in this moment <laughs> that I didn't realize I had, I was just blown away. Like, yeah. And in fairness, that guy's not in a in a in a lonely crowd, right? There's probably a lot of people that wake up, smoke weed, and watch porn. I mean, this is not an elite club. Yeah, and I think maybe that's not my um, experience, you know. So I was very surprised by that. So it's probably not an elite club. And here I am, you know. Like, well, at least that my husband's not like I was looking down on him and I and I'm not usually it's, it's it's interesting. No one likes to see themselves as someone that looks down on other people. Like I'm pretty easy going about stuff, but I'm like, nope, that's also in my heart, too. Oh, my word. Like I have a sense of superiority that needs to be confessed and dealt with because while I might not be smoking weed and watching porn when I wake up, look at this sense of superiority that welled up in me and acting like the Pharisee. So I too am a Pharisee. You you have a section of the book where you talk about re- repentance. And I think that that term, you know, I, I just think the average American probably thinks of repent, you know, turn or burn or the p- pictures, the person in Times Square with a sign about, you know, religious turning around or whatever. And you talk about beautifully, you talk about returning home and you quote one of my favorite authors, Alexander Schmemann, mm-hmm. um, who says that, um, repentance is a deep desire to return, to go back, to recover that lost home or the beauty of who we are that we find in our creator and, you know, being in relationship with creator and creation, that that's what repentance is. It's getting back into that space. It's not this sort of um, putting your hair shirt on and whipping yourself, <laughs> telling yourself you're a terrible person or these things, but it's more like it's recognizing, oh my gosh, it's like, um, it's it's one of the things I think like depression, right? Like, it robs us of desire, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so, like you know, get depressed. All of a sudden, you realize I haven't showered in three days. They're flossed or anything. And then you take that shower, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I feel like so much more human." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you have this beautiful way of discussing repentance is this way of rehumanizing yourself. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. Um, I, you know, I. Talk about repentance, and I, um, I think repentance comes with um, admitting who we are. And I talk about that in that chapter about Alcoholics Anonymous. Of, I think uh, you know, um, I don't know why it's leaving me right now. Um, Saint Irenaeus, the glory of God is a human being fully alive, fully alive. Yeah, and I think when we return to God, we return to ourselves, and so that doesn't doesn't he also say that. The, the glory of man, the glory of the human being. So the vision of God is, is, is sort of the glory of the human being, right? Seeing God. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah. I don't have the exact, but yeah, I, 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 I resonate with that. And so I think, you know, people, God created us to be, you know, his image, the goodness, the beauty, you know, all the fruit of the spirit that the Bible talks about, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. And anytime we deviate away from that, I think we deviate uh, from who we're supposed to be. I really like how 
Tolkien did it in, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings with Gollum and how the, the love of that ring dehumanized Gollum. And I think whenever we turn towards, I would say, you know, as a Christian, I would say sin away from what God has for us, the beauty and the goodness in God, then we become less human and we dehumanize others. And I think the first step back towards home, towards ourself, is admitting that repentance, turning back towards the way. It's interesting. You have this great quote in the book in a section, in a, in a chapter, which is, uh, do you see what I see? And you say that um, we are able to truly see when we see the earth from below rather than from above. And you just talk about the, you know, the... Um, how humility allows us to see it from below, prides to see it from above. And I think about like this, you know, it's so funny. I don't, I don't know why when I was reading this, I was thinking about the walking dead and when they realize they all have the virus, right? Like that everybody's infected and it, it, it kind of is a great equalizer, right? Um, and that's an interesting thing, like that we all have the infection of sin and, 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 and all are disoriented and, and, wandering from the source of goodness and beauty, you know, the true, the good and the beautiful. And, mm-hmm. that, and that, and that the acknowledgement of that, right. Is the powerful thing because once you acknowledge that you can't look at <laughs> the dirt from above, you, you, you realize like, you know, um, that someday people are going to, are going to dig a hole, throw you down in it, cover you up and go back to some musty fellowship hall and eat potato salad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> and so that like, it almost seems to me like you're saying here that if you get that insight early enough in life, you can live posthumously the rest of your life. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, I just love this, Scott. Uh, uh, the engagement you have, because I'm glad to be able to talk to you about it and see what strikes you. So, you know, like, you know, from scripture, the devil, like kind of how I was being, like you mentioned at the gym, <laughs> that superiority, like, I am seeing myself above, like people see themselves above, like uh, people say the homeless. Think about the people on the bottom of society or the people on the bottom of your society. Uh, We always see people like ourselves as superior to some people. And yeah, and that superiority complex is where we have our heads in the clouds. We're not anchored into the earth and to hummus, what we're made from. And so what I'm saying is like when we admit who we are, the good and the bad, um, that deflates that superiority complex where we don't think that we're better than our fellow person. We don't think we're better than other people. I mean, yes, we might have certain gifts. Will they have others? We realize that people have something else to offer us and we can sit at their feet and learn from others no matter who they are. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because you have a great chapter in the book uh, called um, Our Teachers, These Messengers of Grace, and, and you spend some time talking about this parable uh, in, in the gospel of Luke again, for, for our listeners that are not, because the, the audience is, is a mix of, you know, people that are religious and people that aren't. Uh, so, but this is in Luke's gospel and it's interesting because it's the only parable Jesus ever tells where someone is named. Um, and he juxtapositions this guy, Lazarus, which means that God is my help. who is like a poor and um, suffering and, um, the dogs are licking his sores. And then there's this rich man, right? And, it, and it's just interesting because the rich man is unnamed, mm-hmm. right? His possessions possess him and take away his name, his identity. Like, it's funny because then the two of them die and they're separated in the afterlife by this great chasm. And it's funny that the things that 
got the rich man there seemed to keep the rich man. He's still trying to boss Lazarus around. Mm-hmm. He still can't be taught by the one whose only lesson was asking, you know, his name was, I need help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it seems to me like you're saying in this chapter that people who are uniquely, uh, I guess, um, Howard Thurman calls them people with their backs against the wall. Mm-hmm. The people with their backs against the wall are going to uniquely have a capacity to teach us uh, and to teach us to accept that we all have our backs against the wall in some place. We all need to embrace that. We spend so much of our lives fighting it and denying it and trying to look like we're not. Our backs aren't against the wall. Mm-hmm. And then we have control. And the reality is we have control over absolutely nothing in this life, right? And there's two kinds of people in this world, right? The people that gradually realize some of that and the people that don't and deny it. Yeah, I just brought to tears by how you're putting it. So uh, uh, your exegesis on that, I'm glad to be able to converse with you on that. It's something very meaningful to me. And so I think of, you know, the current cultural moment, but it's not current. It's been going on of, you know, how we as the United States have treated Native Americans, um, African-Americans, the Japanese, the Latino, Latina, you know, Latinx people. And we need to sit at their feet and learn it would have done the rich man some good in this life if he actually would have listened to Lazarus instead of rendering him invisible and acting superior to him. I mean, he was in hell. And I I mean, I'm really convinced, not just from that parable, but I just think a lot of us who ignore the Lazaruses at our gate, because this Lazarus was sitting at this, I like to think of a gated community, and this poor man was sitting there and he saw Lazarus as an eyesore and something to be rid of, even less than human. And we have those sorts of attitudes towards people. We can we can hear it in the way that people talk about any. I mean, just think about who you despise, you know. Um, and um, but even as an American society, how we talk about those that we see at the bottom of the ladder. I mean, I think Jesus would have been right with them. You know, if he comes today, he'd be with them, and that's been said before. And so I actually think. Jesus lived among the poor and the outcasts of society, and his parents were poor. Mary was poor. I think he learned a lot through them, and I think that living this kind of way up is down life is to humble ourselves and learn from people that we might have initially thought we have nothing to learn from. It doesn't mean to exploit them for our own our own benefit, but just to say, hey, everyone I meet, sh- I should honor everyone I meet and... um their humanity, and see if there's something that I can learn from them. Even if it's just a casual conversation in a grocery store checkout, may I never carry myself as if I'm superior to any other human being and realize that the people that I think are most criminal or heinous, that um, another way, another life, that could have been me. You have a great chapter in the book on possessions um, called Rich Toward God. And you say that, you know, it's... um, you say that Roman Catholic Church and many others tell us that we encounter Christ in the poor. Does that mean poverty it's in itself is virtuous? By no means. There are poor charlatans and rich charlatans, but poverty and poverty of spirit frequently go hand in hand, right? And and I, I think like, because Jesus says them both, right? Blessed are the poor and blessed are the poor in spirit. And I guess I take it what you're saying there is it's just, you know, the more money you have, the more literally you can control your environment. You get better air conditioning, you get better furniture, you get better... You know, you can you can keep your house cleaner off of them. You can do this, you can do that. And so it gives you the illusion of control, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 makes your spirit it kind of exalts your spirit rather than um humbling it, right? And so I think that like what you're saying is that you look, you could there's no guarantee that if you're poor, 
you'll be poor in spirit. But the odds are better mm-hmm. um, that because it's harder to maintain the, the illusion or delusion of control that you have when you have even a little bit of affluence, right? Mm-hmm. And self-reliance, um, you know, these times that we live in have taught us we can't, you know, sickness and upheaval is no respecter of persons, right? Um, and so, I mean, yeah, it gives, I think poverty can be a curse if it gives us the illusion, like the rich man, that we can control everything and that um, calamity won't strike us in, in different ways. And uh, so when you're poor, I mean, you always have something going wrong, something bad. And it's interesting to me that the poorest people are often the most generous per capita. I mean, the studies show that. Um, And I don't understand that. You know, like uh, (laughs) the old song, more money, more problems, uh, I think, (laughs) comes to mind. Um, But yes, that's right. You say something in a chapter called Memento Mori, like remembering death. And you say... God works within our human limits and boundary lines. Of that, we can be sure. Joy. That, that seems to me, right, the essence of, of at least in, in the biblical tradition, right, um, spiritual maturity, right, loving your limits. In the sense of this, the, the primeval story of the first couple, they're not happy with their limits, right? Like they're, 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 they are frustrated with being circumscribed, right? By being saying, you're this and not this. And, 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 this is fitting for you and this is not fitting for you. And I feel like ever since, you know, I feel like every human life, right. seems like to some degree repetition of that story. And that's, and you talk about this importance of keeping our mortality. It's funny because that's, you know, these ancient medieval professors would often have work with a skull on their desk. Mm-hmm. And this is because of this, like if you're a good learned scholar, you're always thinking of reflecting in light of the shadow of death. Like it seems morbid, but, but it's exactly what we were talking about in that chapter, right. That there's calling forth, the idea that our days are numbered, mm-hmm. there's a real freedom in that, right? Mm-hmm. I think when we know our days are numbered, you know, uh, I don't know, the different listener, your listeners are different ages, but like, you know, when we're young, we like, we can do and be anything. We have life ahead of us. And that's somewhat American culture. You can do and be anything you want. It's not necessarily true. No matter how much I want to be an Olympic sprinter at whatever age, I would have never been an Olympic sprinter just because I didn't have that capacity. Um, yeah, but we know that um, so much more now. Right? I think like that when we accept our limits and don't, right? that, we, that, that we know once we're born, yeah, our, our options are just because of our DNA are pretty limited. And once we're two years old, they limit even more, right? Yes. So, like, so you're pretty limited as to what you can thrive at by the time you're two years old. All right. So, yeah. So, like, if I'm trying to surpass my limits, like, I mean, I, there's no way I can possibly learn and be everything. I cannot learn five careers at one time as a human being. And so, but I think that um, that can make us miserable or we can say, okay, we're going to live within our limits. But I think also remembering our deaths and living within our limits help us to prioritize what's most important. So um, again, in our cultural moment, like, oh, maybe it is important to spend time with people we love instead of um, getting the highest position I can in my career because what good does it to gain the whole world, all this money, uh, the vacation homes, if my relationships are trash? <laughs> That's uh, knowing that I'm going to die kind of reprioritizes my life, if I think about it. I had a guest on the show, AJ Jacobs. He wrote The Year of Living Biblically. And as a follow up to that, I mean, it's funny, he tells this story where he was growing his beard, he's walking around and you know, trying to follow every rule in the Bible. And he's in Central Park and somebody says, well, uh, shouldn't you stone me if I'm an adulterer? Because mm. 
That's a rule. So he had a couple pebbles and he threw, <laughs> these, he threw these little pebbles at the sky. But, um, but he, um, he talks about how he, his follow-up book was inspired by that. His follow-up book was Thanks a Thousand because mm. he was saying so many prayers. He's like, he didn't grow up religious or really secular Jew, but he grew up with... And he, he wound up just trying to thank everybody responsible for his morning, his morning cup of coffee. Mm. So he started with the barista, got to know her incredibly well, got to know the water treatment people outside of New York, mm. got, flew to Columbia to talk to the coffee makers, got to know the people that designed the sleeve... And all this stuff, and he's he just talks about how great. I think he's quoting a Benedictine that like that gratitude is chicken soup for the psychologically for the human soul. And you say this: our gratitude does change the world. It allows us to see and live right. It breeds contentment, right? It's not. It's not if you're happy, you'll be grateful, right? Gratitude will bring the happiness, right? It's the it's the gratitude that that is the source of a kind of positive experience. The world, not the other way around, right? Yeah, and I mean, I mean, even the poorest of the poor have gratitude because they have eyes to see what to be thankful for, even though they don't have all the gadgets we have. There are many people that have hardly anything compared to us that are grateful, and it really changes them in how they see the world. Yeah. What are you most grateful for? Uh, I think I'm most, um, I'll say a general thing. Uh, caught me off guard there. I would say beauty, and that beauty that I see and people like my family outside in nature. And beauty really speaks to me of God, even in this relationship, like the be- or this conversation with you. The beauty that you have eyes to see, some of the things I talked about, I mean, that's very beautiful to me and really meaningful to me. And so I think beauty captures, you know, beauty will save the world. <laughs> but I think if I say beauty, that encapsulates, you know, the people close to me, the relationships, the beauty of nature and of, art and music. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think the beauty does say the world. And I think part of what the challenge in late modernity is, right. Is we've severed the true, the good from the beautiful and the beautiful. Right. And, and those things kind of have to stay together, right. For us mm-hmm. to be healthy. And it's like, we've got the truth people, we got the morality people, we've got the beauty people, but oftentimes it's hard to find people that say, look, no, there's a seamless unity between the true, the good and the beautiful. And this is the, this is the source of all goodness in human life. I completely agree with that. Yes. Yes. You wrote this book before uh, two two major things we're living through, like before a pandemic lockdown and before a massive uh, like nationwide protest movement that is um, really turned. I mean, it's so interesting to me that like the George Floyd thing, you know, this travesty that happened. It's all of a sudden it's like there's no like the, the news story swept the pandemic aside and and, and just like. Uh, all these people were out and protesting and, and, and the, our, the whole news um, kind of thing cut short. Um, so I wonder, I mean, would you, would this book look differently had you written on the other side of these two realities? Or do you think this is like book was written for these kinds of realities? I think the book was written for these realities. I mentioned the um, pandemic before the pandemic, right? Uh, Cyprian's Plague. And about yeah. how Christians um, self-sacrificed for the good of other people. And now there's a current um, debate about wearing masks and going to church among Christians who should have other people's um, best in mind. And I talk about how can people of prayer be people who lynch African-Americans or commit genocide. 
And I think the difference in my book is I might have because yeah, you tell this powerful story of a photo in the book where you see these clan members, mm-hmm. and then above the clan members is a sign that Jesus saves. Yes. And so I think maybe if I had written the book around this moment, that maybe I would include uh, included the particularities of what happened with George Floyd and the current moment. But I think in general, um, I think the book addresses how we are to, what posture we are to take in these moments. Um, and I would stand by that self-sacrifice. I, I think of the Good Samaritan parable, right? And if Jesus were telling it today, I feel like it'd be like, um, an undocumented immigrant or an Antifa member coming to the rescue of a clan member yes. when everybody else walked by. Yeah. And Jesus is so scandalous that I think you're exactly right. Like if Jesus doesn't scandalize us now, then I wonder if we know him because <laughs> he's scandalous then and he's scandal- he scandalizes me now. Well, in what way, in what ways does he scandalize you right now? Well, um, my, uh, and I talk about this in the book, I won't uh, name the particular, but there's a particular denomination in the United States and members that Christians that really make me upset by their behavior towards other people and the um, least of these, those that are on the marginalized. And they can be some of the hardest people for me to love. Um, um, And what would, for me, another person, another kind of person that might be hard for me to love is, you know, a pedophile. What would that look like to love a pedophile? Knowing that God loves them in some way that they've hurt other people. What would that look like? It doesn't mean you give in to them and you keep them from jail. That's not what it looks like. But God, what scandalizes me about um, Jesus is that he asked me to love my enemies and I have to work out what love might be and that I can't opt out of loving people that um, rub me the wrong way. I can't get out of, I cannot dehumanize them though I'm tempted to do so. And that that's where our culture is on steroids though, right? Through cable news and through like, this is, you know, I was just thinking about like, I've been talking with several friends how like, you know, when these people who were protesting in Michigan and other places who, and again, I mean, some of this protest, I thought bringing guns and all this is awful, but like, and I wasn't sympathetic to it, but, but it's interesting that people on the cultural left said that these people are putting lives at risk. They're not social distancing. This is the worst thing in the world. And then you saw footage of the protests after the George, George Floyd murder and people aren't social distancing and people mm-hmm. are like, it's crazy. And when people on the left are kind of like, well, this, this matters though. Mm-hmm. And I think like how, how quickly we're able to, and again, I'm not saying that that might not be the right decision, but it's just interesting that we how quickly we, you know, when, when somebody else does something, it's offensive and excusable. When I do it, it's understandable, right? Yeah. And for good reasons. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I know when I'm starting to like pigeonhole someone and say, they're just like this, they're just like that. And I don't give them room for goodness in them. And I'm not talking about someone that's like, you know, like Hitler you know, who would have needed to be jailed and brought in, you know what I'm saying, reined in. I mean, people do need to be reined in. I'm not saying anything goes. But I, I'm i talking about my reaction in my heart towards other people. If when I start to get like hard hearted, meaning I don't give them any room for goodness or grace or anything good to come from them, then I know there's a problem with me. And I think that's rampant in our culture. You're right. Like if they if I do it, there's grace for me. But if they do it, no grace. Right. No grace for grace for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not grace at all, right? I mm-hmm. mean, like this is, I mean, this is the hardest thing. And I think the hardest thing, right, is oftentimes grace for yourself. Mm-hmm. 
Because when you're in that self-righteous position, you're not even giving yourself grace. You're just giving yourself your own righteousness, right? You're giving yourself your own validation. It's when you actually say, I need the permissive mercy, space, and vulnerability, and and forgiveness of God just as much as the protester with the machine gun. They they have just as many blind spots as I I do. That they have just as many hangups. That I am just as capable of... A friend of mine, his Episcopal priest, to say, we're all... um, uh, a couple, deci- three days away, and, and a couple, we're all a couple bad decisions and three days away from being a tabloid headline. Mm. And most days I'm on day two. Oh, wow. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, true. Beautiful because it's so true. That's right. So, thinking about the protesters that you mentioned, maybe with the uh, semi automatic weapons in the Michigan State House, you know, I'd be like, oh my gosh, these people. Maybe you and I wouldn't do that. Scott, okay, that's not our problem, but we have other, like you said, other big blind spots. I like to say, you know, like Jesus talks about specks in people's eyes. Quit trying to dig the speck of sawdust out of someone's eye when there's logs in your own. And I have logs. It might not be the same issues or problems that they do or, you know, someone else has, but I definitely have them and I'm blind to them usually. (laughs) Right. No, that's the nature of blind spots, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can't see them. I mean, this is the thing where like we, we but, but I mean, I, I, this is part of, I take it in your book, when you talk about acknowledging our finitude, meditating on death, getting down into the dirt, because all those things, all these activities you talk about, right? Like the self-emptying um, really get you to a place where at least you're farther away from denying the blind spots, right? Because you're realizing this is the nature of being a human, and I think so much, right, of the human condition, so much of our social organization in life and our accumulation of possessions in life and these things are meant to like convince us that we don't have these blind spots, that we don't have these issues, that, that we're okay. Mm-hmm. And, and the most liberating thing is, no, we're not, right? <laughs> like there's a freedom. It's hard. It's like the indigo girls say, right? The, the hardest to learn is the least complicated. It's not complicated. It's just really hard. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I do think that Al- Alcoholics Anonymous has it right. AA, you know, the steps of alcoholics, you know, you confess who you are, you know, what you're, you, you're not going to be healed until you admit what your problem is. So when we start to see our blind spots, even though we don't like them, even though we don't like them, like I talked about at the why, I have to tell the truth about myself in order to be healed. Marlena, um, you inter- you exist at the intersection of kind of evangelicalism and yet you're a Latina woman, right? Like, and, and one who is concerned with um, justice on the wide cultural scale. D- 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 is there like a, a conflicting thing in your identity? I mean, in the sense of like, th- these are two, like oftentimes, I mean, I mean, this is changing in evangelicalism for the better, thank goodness, I think. But, th- but these things sometimes have been historically intention. If you wanted to have a deeply personal faith, rooted in a kind of piety of the Bible and that kind of thing. And and yet also wanted to be someone who took systemic racism and sexism things seriously. Those things have generally been in tension for a long time. Like, are, do you still live in that in, within and inhabit those tensions? You know what? I never have. Um, when I say, I, I, when I say evangelical, I say, I guess it's adjacent. It's a word. I never like was steeped in evangelical culture growing up. My abuelita I talk about I was Roman Catholic, I guess, I was baptized as a Roman Catholic um, and then christened, but um, I didn't go to Catholic church because it was, there was no 
Catholic church nearby. We didn't have gas to get there. It was out in the country. So I went to a country church, evangelical church. They were very good to me out in the rural area. But I didn't grow up with the trappings of like how women were treated or, um, you know, just that kind of evangelical culture that I came to know once I went to uh, evangelical college because my pastor went there and I thought I should be mentored by Christians. Um, So I wouldn't say that it's never been separated for me. And when I I say visited the evangelical culture, my visitations there, um, I I just could not fathom how it could be separated. Um, I think that, uh, though frankly imperfect, the Catholics um, with their justice, uh, their social teaching are a lot further than evangelicals. Like you don't separate those things. Righteousness and justice, they're the same root word, right? Righteousness and justice, they're the same thing. So how I am on the inside towards someone should not be different than how I treat people on the outside in society. I should be for the flourishing, for the welfare of society. So I've always been really uncomfortable with that. And I've spoken against it because I don't find that it's biblical or the way of Jesus. Yeah, I look at Pope Francis as a great example, right? Here's a guy that's yes. contemplative and and cares deeply about spreading the word of personal forgiveness and also cares deeply about societal transformation and saving the environment and, and racial injustice. It's a very um it's 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 encouraging that somebody can keep all those things um in in, in creative tension with each other. I think you nailed it. Uh, Pope Francis is an example for me. Um, you know, and a lot of, I wish I, you know, obviously black church pastors, cause they do a lot of them, you know, that's an insight, but they care for their community. A lot of, yeah, there's Latino, Latinas. I, I, there are more evangelicals that are doing that. You know, I have friends and mainline friends that are in the mainline, but it's hasn't historically been the cultural evangelicals. I'm evangelical as far as I say, Jesus is central, um, uh, and historic evangelicalism where Jesus is central. But um, yeah, I do not like the divide and Pope Francis is an icon for me of how to live that out. Well, I'll tell you, your book is iconic on lots of these issues and I hope lots of people read it. Thank you for writing this wonderful book, The Way Up Is Down. And thanks for spending some time talking to me about it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a lot to me too. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.